And let's open our Bibles together to the book of Romans, chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And I'm going to read and preach verses 11 through 13 this morning. We are continuing in this list of exhortations that Paul's given us in chapter 12 that tell us how we're supposed to live out the gospel we've believed in the context of the local church, which is the family of God. So in a sense, these are the family rules our Father has given to us that he's posted for us to see. This is how he wants us to live as his children in his household. To be clear, these aren't how you get into the family. You get in by grace through faith in Christ. But once you're in the family, these are how you live in the family. They're the family rules for all who've been adopted by the Father and through the grace of the Son been made his children. So we're in the family as believers. Therefore, it's important for us to know these family rules so that by God's grace we can live them together for his glory and also for the good of our brothers and our sisters. So let me pray for us and then we'll look at them together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for adopting us into your family through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for giving us these family rules, these exhortations and commands about how to live out the gospel in our lives and in our life together as a church. We pray now that you would help us to understand them and by the power of your spirit to apply them to our hearts and lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 12, reading verses 11 through 13. This is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. As you can see in your sermon notes there, we'll look first at what Paul says in verse 11 about fervent service, then at what he says in verse 12 about joyful, prayerful patience, and finally at what he says in verse 13 about generosity and hospitality. So first, fervent Service, And you can see there are three brief exhortations in verse 11. The first is stated negatively. It reads, do not be slothful in zeal. God's telling us through Paul not to be slack, not to be sluggardly. Don't be idle, don't be lazy when it comes to zeal. Don't be slothful like a sloth, nothing against sloths, they're part of God's creation, it's just that they're not necessarily exemplars of zeal, they're a bit slow, they they don't seem to have a lot of energy, they don't seem to be very eager creatures, so we shouldn't be like sloths when it comes to zeal, perhaps we should be more like 
golden retrievers. In our zeal for God, in our zeal to know God, our zeal to know God's word more, in our zeal for sound doctrine, in our zeal for the lost who are outside the walls of this church, in our zeal also for the spiritual good of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in this church. We shouldn't be like sloths, God says. We should be like golden retrievers, if you will, in our zeal. Now, of course, it's possible to have a lot of zeal, but not to have it pointed in the right direction. Sort of like a basketball player racing down the court for an easy layup, only to turn around and realize he's just scored on the wrong basket, as I once did. (laughs) It's possible to have zeal, but not to have it pointed in the right direction, which was the case, you'll recall, with the unbelieving Jews of Paul's day. Remember what he said back in chapter 10, verse two, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So we want to have zeal, but we don't want to have misguided zeal. We don't want to have misdirected zeal as they did. We don't want to have zeal without knowledge. We want to have zeal with knowledge. Our zeal channeled in the right direction and to the right end. So let me ask you in light of God's word, how's your zeal these days? What's your zeal meter reading? Perhaps it's rather low, or at least not as high as you'd like it to be. I think we could all say that. Maybe it is high, though, but maybe it's not always pointed in the right direction or to the right end. The glory of God, not yourself, and the good of others, the building up of others. None of us have this just right We all need to examine our zeal and see if it's lacking or if it's misguided. And I think we all need to remember our Savior, whose zeal was perfect, who cleansed the temple of the money changers because zeal for his father's house consumed him. A godly zeal, a God-centered zeal, A zeal that was pure and perfect. He was never slothful in zeal. And he died to make us zealous for good works. As Paul says in Titus chapter 2, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." Jesus died for us on the cross to purify us, to redeem us, to make us zealous 
for good works. His zeal and his death empowers our zeal, makes our zeal meter go up. And in him we can obey the command, do not be slothful in zeal. Well, that's what we're supposed to not be. What then are we supposed to be? Paul says in the second phrase of verse 11, be fervent in spirit. Don't be slothful, be fervent. Be earnest and passionate. Be ardent and devout. Don't be cold and dull in your spirit. Burn and glow in your spirit. Be fervent. Now, this isn't just about personality type. It's not saying merely be an extrovert. No matter your personality type, you can be fervent in spirit. You can be fervent in your spirit, which might look different than someone else being fervent in their spirit. God made each of us unique, like the different kinds of instruments in an orchestra. And we're all called to play fervently, but that's going to sound different depending on what instrument we are. Be fervent in spirit. Now, when it says in spirit, it's either referring to our spirit or to the Holy Spirit. But no matter which way we take it, they both basically end up in the same place. Either we're to be fervent in our spirit, which we know is empowered by the Holy Spirit, or we're to be fervent in the Holy Spirit, which is actually manifested in our spirit. I take Paul to be referring to our spirit, lowercase s spirit, our human spirit. But again, the only way we can be fervent in our spirit is if we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's the fuel of our fervency. And note also that it says be fervent in spirit, not be fervent in body. Of course, we're to serve the Lord with our bodies as much as we're able, but I think this can be a particular special encouragement to many of our members because this is something you can be in spirit even if you can't be in body. Even if you can't be fervent in body because of age or illness or disability, you can be fervent in spirit. Wouldn't you describe Johnny Erickson Tata as fervent in spirit? I sure would, and yet she's paralyzed from the shoulders down and has been since she was 17. Wouldn't you describe many of your fellow church members as fervent in spirit, even though they're not able to be fervent in body? We can all be fervent in spirit by the enabling grace of the Spirit of God. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And later in verse 16, so we do not lose heart. 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So if you're not able to be fervent in your body, don't lose heart. Trust God that your inner self is being renewed every day. And be fervent in your spirit by the power of the Holy Spirit. The third exhortation is serve the Lord. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. So our zeal and our fervency should be employed in the service of the Lord. It's not enough just to have zeal or just to be fervent. We must serve the Lord with our zeal and our fervency. Our zeal and fervency aren't supposed to be like a live wire just flailing around vigorously but aimlessly. They're supposed to be plugged in to the service of the Lord. All that energy is meant to be harnessed and used to serve God. Four brief thoughts on serving the Lord. First, we're called to serve the Lord with gladness. It says in Psalm 100 verse two. If we serve the Lord begrudgingly instead of gladly, then we're not really serving the Lord In our hearts, we're still serving ourselves. We're just kind of bummed about the fact that we have to serve the Lord. That kind of service doesn't glorify God. It doesn't please God when it's not our pleasure to serve him. He calls us to serve him with gladness. He calls us to serve him with joy and with delight. And when we remember it's our God we're serving, That'll help us to serve him with gladness. Second, serve the Lord in the presence of the Lord. Remember that God is with you as you seek to serve him in whatever you're doing, which will both improve your service and empower your service. It'll improve your service since the one you're serving is actually watching you. So kids, sort of like how you might clean up your room just a little bit more carefully if your mom or dad is standing in the doorway watching you clean your room. It'll improve our service if we remember that our heavenly father is watching us. Not so he can pounce on us every time we do something that is just the slightest bit short of perfection, but still it changes things when we remember that everything we do is done in his presence. Everything we do is done before his face. So it'll improve our service to know that and it'll empower our service to know that. Knowing that God is with us as we serve can encourage us and strengthen us and empower us in our service. Like in Isaiah 41.10 that we talked about last Sunday evening. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 
if we remember that God himself is with us, strengthening us, helping us, upholding us, that will empower us as we seek to serve him. So serve the Lord in the presence of the Lord. Third, serve the Lord with your whole life. With your whole life. In every area of your life and all throughout your life. Serve the Lord in every area of your life. School, work, chores, free time, your job, your finances, your body, sports, relationships, church, everything. Serve the Lord in every area of your life. And serve the Lord all throughout your life. Whether you're young or old, serve the Lord with the rest of your life. And children and teenagers especially, let me say to you, on the basis of God's word and from my own personal experience, there's no better life than a life lived in the service of the Lord. There's no better life than a life lived for Jesus Christ, with Christ and for Christ. This fallen world may seem like it has a lot to offer, and in one sense it does, but it all pales in comparison with following Christ. Like a few old pennies compared to all the gold inside Fort Knox. So whatever you do with your life, serve Christ in it. Serve the Lord with your whole life. And fourth thought on serving the Lord. Serve the Lord who served you in the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus died and rose for you. He served you in that sense. So when we think about our call to serve the Lord, we need to remember that the Lord has first served us in love and mercy. We serve the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We love because he first loved us. We also serve because he first served us. So serve the Lord with gladness. Serve the Lord in the presence of the Lord. Serve the Lord with your whole life. And serve the Lord who served you. Well, that's what Paul says in verse 11 about fervent service. Let's look secondly now little more briefly of what he says in verse 12 about joyful, prayerful patience. You'll notice verse 12 also has three short exhortations and the first one is rejoice in hope. That is rejoice in the hope of glory. Rejoice in the present hope of future glory on the new earth. Glory is coming for the believer. That's the sure hope we have because of the gospel. And we can rejoice in that. 
We can have joy in the here and now because of the hope we have of the glory that awaits us. John Murray wrote that the hope is the hope of the glory of God and it is one of unalloyed, consummated bliss for the believer. Hope realized will be a morning without clouds. There will be no mixture, no mixture of good and evil, joy and sorrow. As we sang together earlier, rejoice in glorious hope. Our Lord the judge shall come and take his servants up to their eternal home. And because of that, because that's true, because that's what's going to happen, as believers, we don't despair in hopelessness, we rejoice in hope. Even if we're in the most difficult of circumstances, if we have hope, we can have joy. Like a soldier who's in a prisoner of war camp, but who has the sure hope of rescue coming. No matter what is happening now, we can rejoice in hope of what will happen then. And that can help us to endure what's happening now. The hope of glory is the anchor of the soul in the storms of life. So we're called to rejoice in hope. But how do we do that? How do we do that especially in the midst of suffering and sorrow? Well, first I think it's important for us to remember that we're also called to grieve in hope. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, meaning believers who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. When our loved ones die in the Lord, we're not to grieve as others do who have no hope, but we are to grieve as those who have hope. So we're to rejoice in hope, yes, but we're also to grieve in hope. I think we can also be like Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.10 who was sorrowful yet always rejoicing. He was sorrowful because of his circumstances but he was also rejoicing because of his salvation. No matter what may be going on on the surface of our lives, there's an underground river of joy that flows in the soul of a believer. And sometimes it springs up above the surface. Hopefully often it springs up above the surface, but even when it doesn't, it's still down there flowing. And no circumstance can cause its flow to cease. Like we read in Lamentations chapter three, verses 19 through 24. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. If we want to rejoice in hope, we'll need to call to mind the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. We'll need to call to mind the mercies of the Lord that never come to an end and the great faithfulness of the Lord. If you want to rejoice in the hope of glory, you'll need to remember the hope of glory. You'll need to remind yourself of it often. You'll need to preach it to your own soul. You'll need to sing it, to sing about it, which we so often do together. And you'll need to pray for it, which we'll talk about in a minute. Like Paul did in chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Rejoice in hope. The second exhortation is related. Be patient in tribulation. Jesus said in John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In the world we will have tribulation, but in Christ we have peace. And therefore we can be patient in that tribulation. We're in Christ, we're in the ark. And therefore, like Noah, we can be patient in the flood. Acts 14.22 tells us that Paul and Barnabas went about strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The path to glory is a rocky path. It's not an easy path, it's a difficult path. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, but we can be patient on the way because the celestial city is worth it. 2 Corinthians 4 again. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. I think it's very easy for us to grow impatient in the midst of tribulation, isn't it? Even if we understand that God is using the tribulation to sanctify us, we sometimes want him to do that at microwave speed when he intends to do it at crockpot speed because part of what he's often doing is cultivating patience itself in us of course he sanctifies us in a number of different ways through tribulation but he's often teaching us patience he's cultivating patience in us Patience is a fruit of the Spirit, and he's pruning us so that we'll bear more fruit. 
like an apple tree in an orchard. He's pruning us not to destroy us, but to make us more fruitful. He uses tribulation to help us bear the fruit of patience and all the other fruits as well. Be patient in tribulation. Our Lord Jesus was patient in tribulation. Isaiah 53, verse seven, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You'll remember that's what Jesus did before Pilate and many of his accusers. In great patience, in great mercy, he opened not his mouth in response to many of their accusations. First Peter 2, 22 and 23, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's what we can do too. Relying on his strength, following in his footsteps. In the midst of tribulation, we can entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. In the midst of tribulation, we can be patient. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. It sounds great. We, we want that. But how do we get it? How is it that we're able to do that? How can we obey those two exhortations? Well, it's by obeying the third exhortation in verse 12. Be constant in prayer. It's only by God's grace and with God's help requested and received through prayer that we can rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation. Prayer is the supply line through which we receive the supplies of grace we need in order to rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation. Or as I heard someone say recently, prayer is the straw. The straw through which we drink up the water of life which enables us to rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation. And we're to be constant in prayer. Ephesians 6, 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Or Colossians 4, 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Or Luke 18, verse 1, introducing the parable of the persistent widow. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Jesus himself was constant in prayer to the Father. His custom being described, for example, in Mark 1.35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. We're to be constant in prayer. Pray first thing in the morning. Pray last thing in the evening. And pray a lot in between. 
Make your first conscious thoughts of the day be prayer to God. Make your last conscious thoughts of the day be prayer to God. And then fill the day with prayer in between. Pray in your quiet time and in family worship. Pray while you're in the shower and brushing your teeth and getting dressed. Pray before your meals. Pray when you're in the car on your way to work or school. Pray when you're on a walk through the neighborhood or in the park. Pray prayers of adoration when you see the beauty of creation. Pray prayers of confession when you sin. Pray prayers of thanksgiving when you experience God's mercies in some way. Pray prayers of supplication when you get a church-wide email with a prayer request or a friend texts you about something or when fellow church members come to your mind during the day. Follow Charles Spurgeon's counsel to always put a few words of prayer between everything you do. You do one thing, and then before you do the next thing, pause and pray for God's wisdom and help. Put a few words of prayer in between. Pray at set times during the day, like Daniel, who prayed three times a day, or the psalmist in Psalm 119, 164. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Set an alarm on a device to periodically remind you to pause and pray. Do whatever you need to do. Get whatever practical help you need in order to be constant in prayer. But for all that, I think the greatest thing that will help us to be constant in prayer is simply to recognize our utter dependence on God. The more constant our sense of dependence on God is, the more constant in prayer we will be. We need to be reminded to be constant in prayer because we're not naturally constant in prayer and we're not naturally constant in prayer because we're not naturally dependent on God. We're more often self-dependent, self-reliant. When you don't think you need help, you don't call for help. When you know you need help, you call. We need God every hour, every minute, every moment, and when we sense our need for God, then we will pray to God. So in order to be constant in prayer, we can be helped by all those practical things I just mentioned and more, but if we wanna be constant in prayer to God, we need a constant awareness of our dependence on God. So pray for that. Let me say a few words about verse 13 and then we'll close. Look at verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So this is about generosity and hospitality, our third and final point. We contribute to the needs of the saints through our tithes and our offerings and through the deacon's offering after the Lord's Supper once a month. But there are lots of other ways we can contribute to the needs of the saints, financially and materially and relationally and spiritually. And in order to contribute to the needs of the saints, we have to know the needs of the saints. And in order to know the needs of the saints, we have to know the saints. We have to know each other and be open with each other, so that we can be aware of each other's needs, so that we can seek to meet those needs 
with God's help. And all the saints have various needs. There's no such thing as a needless saint. We're all needy in different ways. And we can all contribute to the needs of the saints in different ways. And we're called to show hospitality to the stranger, Hebrews 13, 2, to one another, 1 Peter 4, 9. The Lord's Day is a great time for this. You can invite a visitor or a few church members to your home for lunch after the morning service or for dinner after the evening service. You can have a neighbor over for dinner during the week or for lunch on Saturday. And it doesn't have to be a state dinner. Just make it a family dinner. Make it normal and real. Make it repeatable and doable so that the people you have over will be inspired to do it themselves so that more people can receive hospitality and then those people can turn around and show hospitality to others still more so that there's a culture of hospitality, a wider net of hospitality that catches more and more people. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Be generous and be hospitable. And in doing so, I'll mention as we close, we'll be like our generous and hospitable God. God has shown infinite generosity and ultimate hospitality to us. By lavishing the riches of his grace upon us and by welcoming us, even us, to his table. As we're about to sing together, how sweet and awesome is the place with Christ within the doors. While everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in. Else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. God has shown infinite generosity and ultimate hospitality to us. That's our motive for showing generosity and hospitality to others. That's our motive, in fact, for following all of these family rules. Our Father has welcomed us into his family. Let's honor him and follow his word by his enabling grace for the good of our brothers and sisters and for the glory of our Father. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your infinite generosity and your ultimate hospitality that you have shown to us in the gospel of your Son. 
motivated by that and empowered by that, help us to follow these family rules you've given us for each other's good and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's take a minute to think and pray about what we've heard.